Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now, you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave but of the free woman. This is God's word. Let's pray. God, I pray that for every person in this room and every person listening to me online would come away knowing that he or she is a child of the free and not of the slave. Lord, I pray that you would teach us to live as though that were true because it is. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I can't think of a more heart-rending circumstance than the very common biblical motif that Paul underscores in the passage we just read. It's not something that we like to talk about. It's not something that we bring up in polite conversation because it is so grievous but it's a situation shared by millions of women. And it's a very common occurrence in the Bible to meet a woman who, for one reason or another, hasn't been able to have children. The Bible uses the word barren, desolate. In Greek, the word used here in verse 27 of Galatians chapter 4 to describe the situation of a woman who can't get pregnant is related to the word desert. And I realize there are probably dozens in this room for whom the whole concept tr triggers extreme emotional pain. And yet over and over again in Scripture, the biblical writers introduce us to women in this situation. And over and over again, the Lord shows himself to be on their side. Elizabeth, who late in life would become the mother of John the Baptist. The man and woman who built an apartment for the prophet Elisha. Hannah in 1 Samuel, Rachel in the book of Genesis, and of course, the mother of them all, this great patriarchal princess that Paul mentions, Sarah, the wife of Abraham. Sarah was 89 years old when strange visitors arrived to speak with her husband. 89 years of disappointment, 
89 years of loneliness. She had long since given up any hope that she could have a child of her own in spite of the fact that for decades her husband had told her over and over again that the Lord had promised to make him into a great nation with countless children. And so as she sat inside her tent, she overheard one of these visitors say, next year Sarah's going to have a child. And you know how she responded. She laughed. It's interesting, isn't it, how a single, almost involuntary response can display for us a wide, such a wide variety of emotional responses. She laughed, but she did not laugh with joy. It wasn't a happy laugh. It was a bitter, cynical laugh. The laugh of a leathery, calloused heart. You see, Sarah didn't really know how to laugh, not in a good way. She had been disappointed so many times that there wasn't any room left for joy. And I've found that the same is true for many professing Christians. Maybe you've found this in your own life. Uh, they believe that God loves them, that he's good and wise and strong, but they don't really believe it in their hearts. He's told them to sing, to rejoice, that they are no longer going to be a desert but a fruitful garden but they just can't seem to leave behind the chains of sin and guilt. And in Sarah's case, it took a while, but eventually she learned to laugh for real. A year later, when her son was born, she called him Isaac, laughter, because she said, God has made laughter for me. In today's text, Paul is going to help us learn how to laugh. How to rejoice in the freedom we enjoy in Christ and how to laugh off the accusations of the false brothers who want to enslave us all over again. And he does so by explaining a familiar story in a surprising way. So here's what I want to do this morning. I'd like to take three passes at this text. Uh, first, we're going to see the story in its original context. And next, we're going to see the significance that Paul makes out of the story that he attaches to it. And then thirdly, I'm going to try and draw out some specific applications. So story, significance, specific applications. So let's begin with the story. Paul asks yet another rhetorical question in verse 21. He says, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? Uh, in our minds, the law is all rules, but the word law was actually shorthand for the first five books of the Bible. So what Paul is saying is, if you want to be under the law, the rules, do you not listen to the law, the first five books of the Bible? And he points us back to the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 12, we're introduced to a man named Abram, a man who becomes central to the story of God's salvation work in the world. And later, God calls him Abraham. Uh, his wife's name was Sarai. God changes her name to Sarah. And, and he promises Abraham that he's going to bless him and make him the father of a countless multitude of peoples and nations. And at a certain point, while Abraham and Sarah were sojourning in Egypt, Sarah acquired a slave by the name of Hagar. And Hagar returned with them to the land of Palestine. Now, God repeats his commitment to Abraham over and over and over again, that he's going to make him a great nation, but Abraham's getting older and older, and he still doesn't have a child. And even though they had God's clear promise, Abraham and Sarah begin to grow impatient. They trusted God, but only so much. 
And so in the course of time, Sarah goes to her, her husband. She says, Abraham, I'm not a young woman. I, I can't have children. That stage of life is over for me. It's not going to happen. And if God is going to make you into a great nation, then you're going to need a son. There are no two ways about it. And so Abraham turns to Sarah and he says, yeah, I know, but what can be done? Well, you know, I have Hagar, my maidservant. She's still young. She has to do whatever I tell her to do. And I, I want a child, Abraham. And so Sarah gives Hagar to her husband, and Hagar conceives and has a son named Ishmael. And so what happens is Abraham and Sarah, they see the blessing of God, and they see that it's way out of their reach. And so they take matters into their own hands in order to bring about circumstances that they think are going to bridge the gap between themselves and the blessing God has promised. By the way, the language in, in Genesis chapter 15 makes it clear that what Abraham and Sarah are doing is exactly what Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3. Uh, we're, we're told in Genesis chapter 3, uh, God rebukes Abraham and he says, you listen, instead of listening to me, you listen to the voice of your wife. Uh, that's not a comment about listening to women, that's a comment about he didn't listen to God. And the same language is used in, in, in Genesis chapter 15. Instead of listening to God, Abraham listened to the voice of his wife. So this is man's idea, Abraham and Sarah. This is man's collaboration, man's plan, man's effort to get what they want from God. And that causes all sorts of problems. God still shows loyal love to Abraham and Sarah, uh, in spite of the problems, and years later, when Sarah was uh, 90 years old, she gives birth to a son on whom God was going to place the promise, a son she called Isaac. And when Isaac arrives, before long, Ishmael has to go. So that's what happened. Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. Uh, free woman. But the real question is, why does Paul bring this story up? And so uh, what, what we need to do is move on from the story to the significance that Paul attaches to the story. So let's do that. Notice what he says in verse 23. Ishmael was born according to the flesh. Isaac was born through promise. Here's what that means. Ishmael's birth was all about the efforts and the ingenuity of man. This was Sarah sort of hacking a life problem and getting the job done. Isaac's birth, on the other hand, was impossible from the standpoint of human effort. Uh, it had nothing to do with man's effort, and it wasn't man's idea. So Paul's not saying that Hagar or Ishmael did anything wrong. He's not saying anything about that. What he's saying is that the birth of these two sons represents two completely different approaches to God. On the one hand, in the case of Ishmael, Abraham and Sarah take matters into their own hands, but in the case of Isaac, God is the one who brings about the fulfillment of the promise, and, and it displays the grace and the goodness and the power of God. New Testament scholar Timothy George uh, in his commentary on Galatians, notes that there are two specific differences between Ishmael and Isaac, their status and the circumstances of their birth. Ishmael's status was that of a slave because his mother was a slave. As much as Abraham may have wanted to make him his heir, he was a slave. Isaac's status was one of freedom because his mother was free. Therefore, he was born free. The circumstances of Ishmael's birth were orchestrated by man. The circumstances of Isaac's birth were orchestrated by God. Now, 
it's very possible that the false brothers were actually using this very story against the Galatian believers in their attempt to get them to be under the law. They may have shared with the Galatians something like this. You're connected to Abraham, sure. That's great. You're really close to the blessing of God. That's wonderful. You're, you're going to get a little bit of blessing, just like Ishmael did. But you're not really a child of the promise because we are the physical descendants of Isaac, and Isaac is the one that God chose to be the recipient of God's promise. And so it's great that you're close, just like Ishmael, and that might help you a little bit in life. But if you really want to become part of the blessing of God, then you need to become a part of the Jewish people. And what Paul seems to do is to take that argument and turn it on its head in radical fashion. This is the sort of thing... Put yourself in the, in the shoes of a Jewish person in the first century. This is the kind of thing that got Paul arrested and almost killed on multiple occasions. It was so offensive to the Jews because what he says is that it's not the Gentile believers that we can compare to Ishmael and Hagar. It, it's, it's the Jews themselves. Like, you may be physically descended from Isaac, but spiritually you are sons of the slave woman. He says we interpret this allegorically. That's not... Uh, he's not using that term in the technical sense that we would often use that. It's not like Pilgrim's Progress or uh, some of the other allegorical works of the day. Uh, there were writers and philosophers in Paul's day that he would have been f aware of that, uh, that use allegorical interpretation. Man, uh, man like, uh, men like Philo uh, of Alexandria uh, would discount the historical accuracy of the Old Testament and turn everything into an allegory. And Paul's not doing that. Uh, he's, he's not discounting that this actually happened. You might say he's interpreting the account in Genesis typologically. He's observing types and shadows that represent truths that would later come out about the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, my former pastor, Dr. Jim Hamilton, has called this a promise-shaped pattern in the story of Scripture. It's like a thread or series of threads that begin in Genesis and run all the way through the storyline of the Bible to the book of Revelation. That's what he's noticing here. And he says that, believe it or not, that thread starts with Hagar, and it actually runs right through Mount Sinai itself. Sinai is not a means of salvation. It's not a way of getting to God. It's actually a source of enslavement. The law can't save. It can only condemn. It, it doesn't do away with sin. It just exposes and inflames sin. And this is why, amazingly, the Jerusalem establishment of Paul's day actually corresponded not to their physical ancestors, but to their spiritual exemplars, Hagar and Ishmael. They were just like them. They were close to the promise and the blessing, but they didn't get it. They were outside of it because they didn't have Christ. So what Paul is saying, and I know I've mentioned this before, but I want you to be clear on this. He's not saying that Sinai is one of God's failed attempts at saving his people. It's not a failed experiment. What he's saying is that his counterparts in Jerusalem had fallen prey to a fundamental misunderstanding of the role of the law in Mount Sinai itself and the Ten Commandments and the rest of the law played that and, and how those things played out in salvation history. It was never intended to save. 
It was intended to underscore and to exacerbate the tension between this promise that God was going to show mercy to his people and on the other hand, his righteousness and his refusal to accept rebels into his family. We're supposed to feel this tension. God's holy and he can't countenance rebellion, but he's also loyal and gracious and he's not willing that any should perish. And the present day Jerusalem establishment could not understand this. The so-called followers of Jesus who were just as reliant on the law, they imagined that the law and their adherence to it could resolve that tension, but it could never do that. And the result of that, of course, is slavery. They're slaves. They, they have no ability to get toward the goal, to get to the goal towards which they are working by the means that they're trying to get there. But on the contrary, true followers of Jesus whether they're ethnically Jewish or not, it makes no difference. Those true followers of Jesus are actually the heirs of the promise of Isaac. They're heirs with Isaac. They're residents of the heavenly Mount Zion, the Jerusalem above. And because we're sons and daughters of the free, we ourselves are free as well. And that difference between slave and free is going to have some practical implications. Two in particular, as highlighted by these two Old Testament quotations in verses 27 and 30. So notice, Paul gives us two Old Testament quotations. The first is in verse 27. And this first practical application is that we ought to rejoice. Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. God didn't show favor to the outwardly impressive achievers. He showed favor to the desolate, to the barren, to the used up, to the washed up. That's the reason for rejoicing. If you've been broken and beat up, if you're helpless and deserted, then God has reached down and saved you, so you must rejoice. And then the second implication is found in verse 30 with this other Old Testament quotation. And here's what it is. Those who are shackled, who remain under the law, and who refuse to call out to Christ for forgiveness and be rescued from the demands of the law, they are never going to leave the free children alone. We're told in the book of Genesis that when Isaac was a baby, his older brother Ishmael used to mock him. And eventually, one day, it became so bad that Sarah turned to, to Abraham and she said, I can't take it anymore. I cannot stand to watch that son of a slave woman mocking the son of the promise. And she says to Abraham, cast out this woman and her son. I mean, Abraham, of course, is distraught. But God tells him, do it. Send him away. Here's Paul's takeaway. You should rejoice, but you need to stop mingling with these guys. You need to reject them. You need to reject their teaching because it's poison. Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free. So in other words, the emphasis here that Paul is making is on these imperatives. It's on these two Old Testament quotations. On the one hand, rejoice. Rejoice because you've been desolate, but God is making you into a fruitful garden. On the other hand, reject. Cast out these poisonous, enslaving, legalistic teachings. And so with that being said, we can now turn from the story and from the significance and really drill down and make some specific applications. Now, since Paul tells us to do two things, and I know I'm moving quickly through this passage here, he tells us to rejoice and he tells us to reject. 
Uh, that's the, those are the headings under which I want to make these specific applications. So in the first place, knowing we're children of the free and not the slave, rejoice. Uh, this quotation in verse 27, you may have picked up on the fact that in the beginning of the service, it actually comes from Isaiah chapter 54, verse 1. Uh, in the context of that original passage in Isaiah, it is Jerusalem itself, attacked, ravaged by enemies, that is compared to a woman bereft of both children and husband, widowed and alone in the world, weeping, desolate, destitute, and poor. But God, in his grace, passes over all the young and the beautiful and the ones that seem to have all this potential. And what he does is he takes Jerusalem, beaten up and bloodied and bruised, and he says, I'm going to redeem you, barren one, and I'm going to make you my bride, and you're going to have all these children. And here, Paul is saying, follower of Jesus, that's you. Just like God promised his grace to barren Jerusalem, he promises his grace to you if you are in the promise. If you are believing in Jesus by faith, if you're a follower of Christ, that's you. That's your destiny. So rejoice. But the problem is, so often we don't feel it, do we? Why is that? Why is it that like Sarah, we hear the good news, and maybe you've asked yourself this question as we've studied Galatians. Why is it that we hear the good news and we know in our minds it's so wonderful to, to be saved, to be forgiven, to be welcomed into God's family, but then we get up on a Monday morning and we think, you know what? I wanted to make toast, but the only pieces of bread are the end pieces. Woe is me. You know, we let little things get to us, and we don't walk in the joy and in the wonder and the laughter of what it means to be a child of God. Why? Recently, I came across an insight from Dr. Timothy Keller, former pastor of Redeemer Church in New York City. In his comments on this passage, and I thought, you know what? That makes sense. Makes a lot of sense. Here's what he said. And I'm paraphrasing. He said, when it comes to the law, there are really two decisions we need to make. First decision, am I going to obey the law? Am I going to obey the commands of God? Second decision, am I going to rely on the law? Am I going to stake my hope in the law? So I have to decide, am I going to obey the law, and am I going to rely on the law? And you can see how this creates essentially four types of people. There are those who rely on God's law and in their minds, they think they're obeying God's law. And what's the problem with these people? Is it that they obey God's commands? No, the problem is that they're relying on the law. So their obedience makes them proud and self-reliant. Have you ever met anybody like that? I'm relying on the law. This is how I get to God. This is how I get the good life. This is how I get blessing. And guess what? I'm doing it. I've obeyed. Now, maybe not perfectly, but in the important things, I have earned my way to God. Do you want to be around a person like that? No. They're horrible to be around. I mean, we don't like to be around that person. We don't want to be that person. But nor do we want to be the kind of person who doesn't rely on the law and doesn't obey the law. I mean, this is a person, we know that this can't be right. Uh, this is a person who just doesn't care about God at all. And so here's what a lot of Christians do. We're a third type of person. We recognize over here, I haven't obeyed the law. I haven't obeyed God's commands. 
I've broken so many of them. Every day I get up, I sin. I'm imperfect. I don't measure up. So they recognize they don't obey. But then over here, they still rely. I mean, have you met anybody like that? Maybe you've been that type of person. That's where a lot of you are right now. Here, here we are. We end up believing that we don't obey and we know that we're sinners and that we don't deserve the love of God but we come over here and we say this is the only way to get it and so I'm living in despair and discouragement and frustration and 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 just sadness and and I don't know how to laugh and that's where a lot of you are right now you might not be a perfectionist who thinks that you can obey everything that the law requires but you're still relying on the law you're still a legalist in other words and this is why you're miserable. This is why you're irritable. This is why you're always suspicious of everybody else. This is why you have, a no, you have no emotional wealth left over for difficult people. This is why you're constantly comparing yourself with everybody else because you think in your mind, man, maybe at least if I'm better than that guy, I might get to God on the basis of the fact that I've done a little bit better and achieved a little bit more. Why is she so happy? Why, why did they let him teach a class? They aren't godly. They aren't walking in obedience. They haven't obeyed any better than I have. We get suspicious and jealous. And it's clear to everybody else except for you that you're just bitter. You don't know how to laugh with joy. And so how much better to be that fourth type of person? That type of person who, yes, obeys the commands of God to the best of his or her abilities, but never, never relies on the commands of God in order to earn God's love. So I'm over here, I'm obeying, not because I need to earn God's, God's care and God's fatherly love. I'm over here obeying because I already am loved and because I know that I'm walking in the plan that my Father has for me. In fact, it's the very people, and here's what the gospel teaches us, it's the very people who don't measure up According to the promise-shaped pattern of Scripture, it's those very people that don't measure up that God loves to lift up. If you're not perfect here this morning, you are welcome here this morning. Uh, if you are perfect, I'm sorry, but you're not welcome. God is not looking for people who are perfect. God is not after the perfect people. He's not out to collect all the perfect people and say, man, I got him. Did you see who I got you know, to follow me the other day? That's not the way he thinks. He loves to redeem the broken. You say, I don't have anything. I don't know very much. I, don't, I haven't obeyed very well. I've got a past. I, I'm a wreck, to be honest. Exact, you're exactly where you need to be. Because God loves to redeem the broken. Your life is an absolute desert. That's just the type of person that God wants to redeem. See, for some of you, the barrenness and the desolation... You know, we've been talking in terms of metaphor, but for you, it's not really even a metaphor. Like, you're alone. You got nobody. No kids, no husband, no wife, no prospects. Think about somebody like Lottie Moon. How many of you have heard that name before? We talk about Lottie Moon every Christmas. If you're part of a Southern Baptist church, no doubt you've heard the name. But you might not know very much about her. I, don't, I didn't really know very much about Lottie Moon. But I learned this week, uh, Lottie grew up in Virginia in the middle of the 19th century. She learned theology at a prestigious Baptist girls' school. 
and that prepared her to become a missionary to China. But what you might not know is that when she was in school, Lottie Moon met someone that she cared very much about, a brilliant young man named Crawford Toy, a pious, gifted teacher of the Bible who was just starting out his career and destined to be widely published and well-known. You can just imagine uh, young Lottie Moon and young Crawford Toy, and they're looking, making eyes each other, at each other from across the room, and they're making plans for their future, and they, they just are in that puppy love stage. And so the two began courting, but they waited to be married. Lottie wanted to go to China, so she went off to China for a short time, and then Crawford traveled to Germany because he wanted to complete his studies. The Civil War delayed their plans even more, after which Crawford Toy joined the faculty of the Southern Baptist Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Well, eventually things took a turn. It was clear that Toy had, in his studies in Germany, grown skeptical of the truth of the Bible and the divinity of Jesus Christ himself, and his colleagues called him on the carpet. He was forced to resign. Still, Lottie remained committed to him as late as 1881 when he was invited to teach at Harvard Divinity School. So you can imagine this young girl, she's burdened for the lost, she loves the Lord, and yet she's in love with this young man. And here he has taken a chair at Harvard Divinity School, the most prestigious school in the nation. And she was faced with a decision. But she realized that she couldn't serve God and marry a man who had proven himself to be an unbeliever. So she stayed single for the rest of her life. She stayed in China, and she completed her missionary career. Now, I can't imagine the heartbreak. I cannot imagine the loneliness. I'm sure that there were many days when Lottie labored as a single woman in a foreign land in which she cried out in bitterness and, and frustration and even anger to the Lord. Days in which she was unable to laugh. But fast forward to today, 150 years later, the work she did survived and thrives in a vast underground church throughout the land of China. And it's spreading even to this day and beyond that land. Each year, Christians in thousands of churches give millions of dollars in her name to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering, which has funded an incalculable amount of international evangelism. Lottie Moon, she never had kids, but she did have kids. So, listen, we have to see this by faith. This is what Paul means when he says, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than those who has, those of the one who has a husband. Today, Indian Creek, let's rejoice, and all, all the more so if we're destitute and broken and alone. Second specific application, reject. Rejoice, reject. Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. By the way, in our modern world, uh, we don't like to read something like this. It offends our sensibilities to talk in a negative way about someone who's a slave. But keep in mind, Paul is not a rich guy with a senator on speed dial. He is a widely rejected member of an oppressed people group. And, and some of the people that he's writing to are actually themselves slaves. So... Let's leave aside our, our modern guilt 
and just understand what he's saying. He says, reject the son of the slave woman. Here's what I think he means. I think this is a warning to us. This is a wake-up call. Those who are enslaved and chained by religious legalism are not going to just let things go. They are going to assault the faithful with their graceless doctrine. Paul says, Ishmael persecuted Isaac. You're going to be pursued. You're going to be harangued by these legalists. Folks, people have chained themselves to this miserable treadmill, this like hamster wheel of trying to keep the law and pleasing God by their keeping of the law, they are, they are going to hate it when they hear you laugh for joy because God has accepted you in Christ. And they're not going to let it go. Some of, them, some of them are going to have influence over you. Some of them are going to be teachers, preachers, influencers, authors, or otherwise empowered to come after your freedom. And they're going to do it. Paul is telling the Galatians, you cannot allow that to happen. If someone is spying out your liberty in Christ, you must reject them. You must cast away their wicked words. Do not let them take away your freedom and the security that you know in Jesus Christ. And if you think it is any different, if you think the stakes are any lower today than they were back then, think again because they are coming for gospel freedom every single day, even today. By the way, let me just make something clear. This has nothing to do with whether a person is more or less conservative than you in terms of their lifestyle choices. There are lots of grace-filled, godly, free believers in Jesus who walk in freedom and rest in their identity in Christ, but nevertheless might make different decisions than you do about their personal choices. So just because you enjoy a beer every now and then and they don't or because you like classic rock and they wouldn't touch it or because you go dancing with your spouse and they can't imagine ever doing so does not mean that they're legalistic. That's not who I'm talking about. That's a different issue. You say, well, okay, who are you asking me to reject? I'm, I'm talking about the million ways in which a legalistically minded person communicates to you that God's fatherly love has an asterisk an exception, a qualification, a condition attached, who pull you into their inner circle or push you away on the basis of whether or not you've checked some box. I'm talking about manipulative preachers who mold behaviors by coercion and coldness and by sowing seeds of doubt among the faithful. Yes, it's true. Some preachers like to keep people a little bit miserable because that makes you easier to control. Watch out for them. I'm talking about the self-help, 10 steps to a better you type books that promise the good life if you think right and do right and pay the $350 to attend the conference, no refunds. But throw in a Bible verse here and there to make it seem like the gospel. We flock to this stuff, and it is rank legalism. Yes, be careful. Go to, you know, listen, go to the leadership conference, go to the finance seminar, go to the marriage conference, but be aware that legalism often lurks in such places. It's building our life on achievement and performance and figuring out how to live better, then I'll be happy. I'm talking about things I've heard in my own church here or in other churches I've been a part of, things I've heard from the pulpit in my Bible college chapel, Things I've heard laced into Christian conversation between Christian friends who mean well but don't know that they are passing poison to their friend. 
You see, more than we, much more than we need to learn how to hustle and work harder and be better, we need to learn how to laugh. To say, to say to God, me, Lord? <laughs> me? You forgive me? You love me? You accept me? You stored up blessings for me? You're going to use me? Your enemy? Broken and desolate? Unimpressive, unimportant, and alone? Me? To really believe what we believe, right? And if you're here today and you know that you're a sinner who breaks God's law and you know that you fall short of his glory, let me tell you something. You are exactly where you need to be. Just open your hands today and say, Jesus, please forgive me. Save me. I've got nothing here to bring to you except my need. And I'm telling you, he will. And for those of you who know that, it's time to laugh. Not bitterly, not sarcastically, not cynically, but joyfully. Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear, break forth and cry aloud.